At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about, you guessed it, you're so clever, board games. I'm here with my great friend, Mark. How are you today, Mark? I'm well, but I guessed wrong. You guessed wrong? Yeah. yeah. You're probably hoping for like a cooking show or car repair, maybe. All my favorite podcasts are about automotive repair. My name is Michael Walker. We are going to talk about the games we played this week. Then we're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. We will talk about our feature game, which is Soldiers in Postman's Uniforms. Mark, what did you play this week? It is another week, another calendar week, and thus I played my Regicide. All that I have to say about Regicide is the following. I've said this on social media, it bears repeating. Anybody who has won Regicide, you can just be quiet and just rest contented in your own sense of superiority. I don't need you all up in my face, all up in my grill, talking about how you've won Regicide. No, they cheated. I don't know what they're talking about. They obviously cheated. I am willing to believe they're not cheaters. They're instead just douchebags. That's fine. (laughs) That's fine. I'm willing to assume good faith, just maliciousness. How's that? Good faith and malice all together. If you've won Regicide, good for you. Just keep it to yourself. Just be quiet. Treasure it like a little secret. And don't show up on social media every other day of the damn week talking about, Hey, Mark, I won Regicide. Have you won Regicide? No, I haven't won it yet. Thanks for the update. And that's Regicide by Paul Abrahams, Luke Badger, and Andy Richdale. And Badger's from Mars. Well, that being said, Mark, how are you feeling, seeing it at different player counts? I'm purposely playing it all this week at different player counts. How are you seeing how it changes up? I played a lot of two-player this week, and I felt as though it had a lot more sort of decision space and a lot more strategy, sort of like uh, making sure you play the right number of cards, pay attention to more how, ma- how many cards both players needed and, and stuff like that. I don't know about decision space. I would definitely say that at two players, it is brutally hard. At three players, it's harder. And at four players, it is yet harder than that. So I definitely find that it is easier with fewer players, uh, primarily by virtue of the greater hand size. Solo, I find also brutally hard, but I, I, I don't know how to compare it to the other because of the jokers working in a different way. And I constantly feel hamstrung by what's available to me, but in a good way. So I'm not sure about decision space. It's always a question of 
what am I defeating now? How am I setting up the player downstream for me? If I defeat this boss, will I be able to take another turn as the next boss? What immunity would really kneecap us and how can I prepare for that? I'm still discovering new layers to the game after having played it well over a dozen times and playing it week after week with new players. But I, the primary difference that I notice in player count is difficulty, not necessarily decision space. Speaking of two-player games, I played some Om- Omitama. This is a very chess-like game where you're playing cards that will tell how, tell you how your pieces move, and both sides have an emperor or a king, and you're trying to maneuver. And the the interesting hook of Onitama is the fact that when you play a card, it goes to the center space, and then the other player gets to take it into their choice of two cards. And there's this back and forth. Really love it. Played chess growing up all my life, so this is a game that I really enjoy. I'm glad it's on Board Game Arena, and so I'm going to be playing a lot more of that. If you've played chess before and you want a more of a gaming experience, because chess is very, <laughs> I don't want to say hard or anything, but I mean, like, if you bring someone new in, it's just not a game when when you've played before against someone who has not played before. So if you want to get a game that puts you both on equal footing, you can pick up a game called The Duke or Barony, or you can both learn a new game, which I am also learning this week. I, there's a website called Online Go, and I'm starting to learn how to play Go because oh, wow. it's a fantastic strategy game as well. Well, on the topic of games that are really pastimes or areas of study unto themselves, I mean, even chess can't hold a candle to go. That's definitely deep waters that you've inserted yourself into, Walker. More power to you. so interesting. So Onitama is designed by Shrempei Sato and published by Conception Games. I played a game called Card Capture. Card Capture is a web-published solitaire deck-building game that can be played with a standard deck of cards. And of course, I was curious about this because it was mentioned by some as something to check out in terms of clever things you can do with a standard deck of cards in the context of discussing, of course, Regicide. This won an award during the Golden Geek for Print and Play Challenge in 2018, and I'd say it's quite interesting. So the the central conceit of the deck building game is that you can only use cards of the same suit to acquire cards of a suit. And your job is to basically acquire all the cards of a deck. So you're going to have to buy the Jack of Diamonds sooner or later. So you have to be careful that you always have enough diamonds to do that. And you buy a Jack of Diamonds by playing a total value of diamonds of 11 or higher. Natch. Reasonably straightforward. And the reason why this is so important is because if you're unable to buy a card that's available in the display, you have to start taking losses. And initially you think, ah, I played a deck builder before. Taking losses is great because my starting cards are junk. I start with two threes and fours. I don't want two threes and fours. And then you can easily end up in a situation where, yeah, the two threes and fours are junk, but if you get rid of too many of your clubs or diamonds or any suit, you're then unable to get the suit that you need and you're basically in a corner. And that is exactly what happened. So it was an interesting challenge, uh, sort of a satisfying little puzzle, a little bit longer than it wanted to be, because again, this, the, the key decisions appear to be about pruning when you're forced to take those losses, or even choosing to take those losses when you don't have to. Yeah, that's what I was just about to ask, whether you had the choice not to buy a card, even though you had enough to do so, yes. just in order to discard cards. Interesting. Absolutely. And it's an, as I say, it's an interesting little, little puzzle, but I felt that it kind of wore out its welcome because it, the, the, the key challenge is managing your suit resources. And past that, it, like any other deck builder, a lot of it is about luck of the draw and, and being able to get the cards you need when you need to get them, which is not a huge criticism of the game, just to comment on the genre. 
And I don't know that I'd go back to it. Solitaire gaming is, you know, our cup runneth over in all kinds of ways. But I'm glad I tried it, and it's certainly worth checking out. And one cannot argue with the price. So that is Card Capture by Lucas Gentry. So in my in-depth look with deck builders that begin with F, last week we did Fayum. This <laughs> week we played Flotilla. This is by J.B. Howell and Michael Maselik. And this is put out by WizKids. It is a game with a lot going on, so I'm not going to go too much into it, but you are building your deck of cards, much like Concordia style. You're playing through them until you play the captain card, which will bring your cards back. We call it deck management card... here on this podcast. Deck manager. I'm so sorry. Yes, deck management. I don't want to get in trouble for not calling things the right thing. <sighs> so yes, you play the captain, you get your cards back. You can play the captain at any time. There's all sorts of ways you can upgrade your deck. There's uh, it's like a post-apocalyptic water world type game where you're you're going out and you're you know diving down for goods now the key to flotilla is this very interesting mechanism where you go from sea you know bottom side to top side so suddenly you go from you know retrieving goods from the bottom of the ocean to actually building out this giant city flotilla thing and that flips over your cards because your cards don't have a back. They're two-sided. So when you go to the other side, all your cards flip over. And now they do something completely different. You have different scoring mechanisms, different actions. And some of your actions actually make uh, actions for the bottom side people better. So sometimes it's almost uh, viable to stay down there and start, you know, profiting off what these topsiders are doing. Very interesting mechanisms. Looking forward to, you know, playing it again. I'm wondering why it didn't get the buzz that, you know, it. I, I think it deserves. I'm just wondering, because this, this was WizKid's first sort of big Euro-y game as soon as, soon as Zed, you know, uh, went over with them. And I'm wondering if people just saw WizKid's and, you know, just brushed it off. Uh, Walker, you're forgetting Sidereal Confluence, which came out before Flotilla. Sidereal Confluence definitely being a Euro-style game and being an absolute marvel of game design. The fact that you don't like it is absolutely no reason to ignore it. Sorry, were you saying something? Yes, what? I was. Sorry? And so okay. it's not that people weren't paying attention to WizKids necessarily because Sidereal Confluence found an audience and I'm very glad that it did. Flotilla is bizarre. I agree with you that I'm somewhat surprised that it didn't get a little bit more traction. I, I do wish that there had been a little bit more time to exploit that interesting differential between I'm top side and I'm bot and another player's bottom side, and the cards we're playing have a weird, interesting supply and demand element to it. It's just, unfortunately, those levels of interesting tension, of interesting coopetition, if you will, are too sparsely distributed towards a game that's about two and a half hours long. And I think that all the elements are fine. It's just, you know, it's a little bit overbaked and a little bit too much going on. I, I want to ask you, though, I'm glad that you played more. I, I, I kind of like to play more of it myself. Was it again the case that the bulk of the points were scored by people building these huge tile chains of a given color? It's like putting out the fifth red tile in a block of five reds and scoring 27 bazillion points as a consequence. Because that was definitely characterized of my early playings. Uh, it, it played a little bit differently because I think we played the the way they were placed out slightly differently. I'll, t I'll talk to that more about that later. But it did seem as though the topsiders were definitely getting the advantage. Sure. Okay. Just off note, I think we might have been playing it wrong when we were playing it. I think we were putting out all of our tiles and then scoring it where you're, I mean, putting, sorry, putting one tile out at a time, like say you're allowed to place three tiles. Uh -huh. You know, we put out that tile and score it, then put out that tile and score it, which is not the way it goes. You're to oh. put out all of your tile. You are to put all of your tiles out and then. And then score once. Then they score. Then I they see. Score, yeah. 
And then, and then when you, so you sort of have to time it. You don't want to take a turn where you, uh, where you play three and then put out all your reds because you just put them all out and then it scores just the once, not three separate times. Now I really want to play right? again. That makes it, that makes yeah, a, so, a large difference. Yeah. So when you do it, you want to do like, I'll do a green here and a blue here and a right. yellow here. And then, then they all sort of score and then you do it again. And then you sort of, you know, so it's more strategic about when you play them and how you play them. So, I'm intrigued. I'm, I'm so sorry, Walker, that I explained the game wrong to you. Uh, well, I think I think you have to f- give us that. You know, we're no, going it's, it's back un- and forth. It's unforgivable. Anytime I expl- I mess up a game explanation that badly, Walker, I deserve to be excoriated. So I'm very no, sincerely that, sorry. That was me, but we were going back and forth on. Oh yes, on... it was you. Yeah, thanks a lot, Walker. You ruined my fun. We were going back and forth on that part of the game anyway. So anyway, <laughs> that was flotilla. On the topic of wrong rules explanations, I played a game of Veritas. Now, I joke, uh, largely out of a sense of insecurity, because I internalize a bad rules explanation or a rules mistake very, very sincerely, and I feel guilty about it sometimes for for days, weeks, and sometimes even months afterwards. So uh, I mentioned that I got taught Veritas incorrectly. It was still eminently playable, uh, but now I'm kind of curious to play it by the actual rules, very much like Flotilla. So I, I don't blame you, Walker, for having misexplained Flotilla. That is just fine. Veritas is a game by James Ernest and Mike Selinker. It was published by Cheapass in 2013. And the theme is utterly unconnected to the game, but it's one that I adore. The theme is you are some aspect of the truth, and you're trying to propagate yourself through medieval monasteries in France. I just love that. I love the process of knowledge preservation and rediscovery and forgetting that happened in Europe during the so-called medieval period. I love the fact that then, a few centuries later, thanks to translations available from largely the Muslim world, they were like, oh yeah, Aristotle, I remember that guy, vaguely sort of. Anyway, but the actual game of Veritas is a very simple area majority game driven by a large influx of randomness in that the map keeps shrinking. These monasteries just keep burning down because that's what monasteries do. Fire was very dangerous in the 10th century and, you know, things got out of hand. But the good news is that if a fire burns out in the monastery, the monks rush in and grab the books and then spread spread them to four corners of the world. And indeed, it's a lot about spreading out your influence in this sometimes uncontrolled, sometimes chaotic way. The rules errors that were introduced made the game strangely less confrontational than it actually is. Because in Veritas, there's this notion of books of multiple players existing in the same space. Whoever has the book on top controls the stack. But in the actual rules, if you have any books in the stack you can propagate yourself and put a new disc on top of the stack and then potentially within the same turn spread this stack according to your own prerogative. So there's a large notion of once your influence exists, it will always exist and it doesn't get removed from the board, but sometimes you're not the one in control of where it goes. And that aspect I find conceptually interesting. Anyway, the version we played was fine and serviceable, and it was just a very simple area majority game. I love area majority games. I felt that the influence of randomness in this version was a little bit too potent, but in the actual version, the element of randomness will be a little less potent. So yay for that. Anyway, I will probably have opportunity to play it again because a local is a big fan of Veritas, and the presentation is kind of charmingly old school. I don't know, did you ever play any cheap-ass games, Walker? 
No, I have not. The theory was at the time when they were publishing in their heyday was that everybody owns miscellaneous dice and tokens and such. And so all that the games would consist in were cards if they needed any, custom chits if they needed any, and the board. And so the game of Veritas consists of nothing more than chits that you pull randomly to determine where the monastery is burnt down, and the board itself. And the board itself is just a series of postcards that you arrange in, into an actual board. And I always thought the business model was cute, albeit misguided. And I think that now that we're in an era of, you know... $200 deluxe versions with metal coins all over the place. I think the fundamental operating thesis of cheap-ass games could could be regarded as miscalibrated to market demands, or at least miscalibrated to current market demands. But I nonetheless applauded their, their sense of gusto. And one can hardly quibble with their fundamental premise, which is that games ideally should be cheaper and we have enough components in our lives. So they were kind of pitching to the better angels of our nature, where we just wish to be acquisitive consumers at all times. Anyway, I enjoyed Veritas. I'd like to play it again. James Ernest and Mike Selinker are longtime fixtures in the industry, and the moment I knew that they were the designers, I knew it'd be in for something at least wild and playable. And sure enough, it was somewhat wild and very playable. Since you're talking about some crazy theme, I'll jump ahead to a game called Shipwreck Arcana because they actually tried to put theme on this, and it makes no sense. I know sort it's, like it's hilariously wizards. irrelevant. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This is designed by Kevin Bishop and put out by Mamorph Games. And what this is, it's much like uh, Search for Planet X type thing, where you're going to set out all of these certain rules, and you're going to have two chits that are numbers one through seven. And according to the rules, you have to put out one of your chits. And that will give information to your teammates, and they can try to deduce from what token you put out and where you put it, what you have in your hand. Sometimes it can be obvious. You have also have a, a nice row of tiles in front of you that are the numbers one through seven, and they can flip them down when they know, you know, for sure information and get it down to one or two and then either like make a guess or just wait. And because the reasons that you, you want to guess is because cards degrade and you want to Make guesses when you can and try to get the points when you can because some cards are better than others and you don't want them to degrade. So you want to, you know, keep the game moving. It is right up my alley. I love that sort of Planet X, you know, if, if you know, if X is Y and Y is X, then C must be D. That is my jam. Really enjoyed it. Shipwreck Arcana. Have you played Hanabi, Walker? I have not played Hanabi. You yet. haven't played Hanabi? No. It's by Antoine Boza, and it is totally like the Shipwreck Arcana, but more of a game. I say this with no disrespect to Shipwreck Arcana. It, I just find it very, very deterministic. It's just, you ask the question, there's one available answer. There's not a whole lot of range for intuitive leaps, or clever cues, or subtle communication. It just seems to, to, to play itself for the most part. Hanabi is amazing. I can't believe I've never played Hanabi with you. This seems like such a great shortcoming and a great mistake. That's the, the deck backwards thing? It is. It is the deck backwards thing. It is. So I did play the Sherlock Holmes version of that. Yeah, they're 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 sufficiently different. They're not. It wasn't just a straight retheme. There was there were significant differences between the Sherlock Holmes thing and the Hanabi. We need to play Hanabi. Absolutely. The only problem I had with it is that there's definitely sort of like a same thing with the the chess type of thing. If you come into a group that played a lot and someone who's not played that type of game at all, they're definitely going to be behind. It's like so, trying to introduce someone to a social deduction game that has never played it before. And 
here's Avalon. Sure. Welcome to it. And you have to make these like <laughs> crazy logical leaps and 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 things that the whole group knows that you have no idea what's going on. So it, it is a game that definitely plays better with people that have played it together before. Sure, but the good news is that if you don't cheat at Hanabi, there are fewer of those leaps you'll be expected to make. And I don't cheat at Hanabi, so there's that. Don't worry, I'll, we'll be able to bring you up to speed. It'll be great. You'll love it. I guarantee it. Anyway, as for games that we actually played this week, I played Empire of the Stars. This is a recently fulfilled Kickstarter by Adam West of Crosscut Games. This is kind of sort of a spiritual sequel to Galactic Emperor. How to be kind about this, Galactic Emperor was... A game? I think that mostly the problem that Galactic Emperor has was it was fundamentally ill-conceived. Galactic Emperor, which was published over ten years ago, also by Adam West, was attempting to Euroify Twilight Imperium 3rd Edition. Now, first of all, why you would want to try to adapt Twilight Imperium 3rd Edition is a mystery to me. Secondly, why you'd want to Euroify it when it was already crippled by its strange devotion to Puerto Rico in space is also a mystery to me. But it was kind of a, a, a stodgy overlong thing where the points kind of came out in dribs and drabs at strange intervals. Oh, wait, I guess it was like Twilight Imperium 3rd Edition. Anyway, Empire of the Stars. Empire of the Stars is a Euro-style 4X game. It maintains some of the aspects. There's still role selection. There's still the attempt to do a little bit of everything, but in a tighter Euro package. But as people who have listened to the show before or who are familiar with my gaming tastes, I really like attempts to do sci-fi empire slash 4x games in a slightly more playable euro package whether it is something like imperium the contention whether it's something like Warpgate, whether it's something like quantum to name three very very different games i tend to appreciate the attempts to distill these experiences into more playable versions and that is one of the reasons why i pledged for empire of the stars then and i find adam west a very interesting guy i've read a lot of his writing i've I, I appreciate what he has to say, even though uh, some of his design work I don't necessarily appreciate. He he did a game called Ninja Toe, which I assume is a game about ninjas writing letters to other ninjas, and it says ninja to ninja. That's why it's called Ninja Toe, I have to assume. I should stop making jokes like this. I could hear in my mind's eye already the um actually squad on, on the internet starting to rise up and have their incredible vile mass directed at my attention. I know why it's called Ninja Toe. It's called Ninja Toe because it's about ninjas in Toronto, so it's Ninja T.O. Don't send me the emails. I understand completely what it's about. Anyway, Empire of the Stars. I played it with three players. I don't know if three is the ideal player count. And it was a little bit tough getting going because, again, I did a bad job explaining the rules. And there's a lot of different things that, although they feed into each other, they're not entirely disconnected. There's a lot of different bits that are involved. There's a market element. There's a supply and demand element. There's a technology element. There's the building of ships. There's the moving of ships. There's the fighting and all the other things. The combat system, though, is one of the key things that's super clever. And I just want to emphasize it because... You are a big fan of Rising Sun's combat system, and so I suspect you might find some stuff to appreciate about Empire of the Stars' combat system. It's the same kind of principle. You get a certain amount of combat strength based on the number of ships that you have and other technologies that you might have, and you secretly assign them to one of three different values, tactics, weapons, or shields. Weapons and shields are relatively straightforward. You look at your weapon's value, and you compare it to an opponent's shield's value, and that's the number of hits you inflict. And you can't take over systems unless you've killed all the ships. But another way you can deal with ships is if you win tactics, the margin by which you win tactics is a number of moves you can do on ships in the sector. 
But those moves can be on your ships or somebody else's ships. So you can end up in this interesting situation where you show up with sometimes a, a strong force or maybe even a weak force, win tactics, force your opponents out of the system. They might inflict a lot of hits on you, but all their ships are gone, so all your hits go straight to their colonies and you pocket them points. There were a number of interesting combats, even though I was playing with people who are, broadly speaking, not particularly inclined towards combat. But it's a role selection game, so if anybody picks combat, everybody's fighting, potentially. I found it full of promise. I enjoyed the first play, but it felt rocky in a number of ways. And I think part of that, again, is not seeing how all the different bits come together. I'm curious about the tempo. I'm curious about how much room there is for games to feel different from game to game, about whether there can be lots of military buildup versus not as much, or more focus on the economy as opposed to the technologies, etc., etc. So I think there might be a lot of room for player creativity and for different metas to evolve from game to game. And I would like to try it again, especially either with people who've played before, or at the very least, doing a better job of explaining the rules so that everything feels a little bit more coherent. Because there's a lot of clever bits in there. Sometimes when there's a lot of clever bits, they come together in a great package. And then sometimes, on the other hand, there's just a lot of clever bits, and it doesn't come together in a great package. I am hoping that Empire of the Stars is going to be the former. I'm optimistic, and I have reason to believe that that's what might manifest. And so that was my early experience with Empire of the Stars, and if I am lucky, I will have more to say later. But I can also say, Walker, you get to play as purple, and the plastic spaceships are adorbs. Sweet. Speaking of interesting combat systems, Mark, we got to try a game called Ruination. This is designed by Travis R. Chance and put out by Colossal Games. And they've tried to take a bunch of stuff from Kemet, it seems. It's like everyone is equidistant from everyone else. You get to fight with these cool monsters that are called exiles. And they're like, you know, it's yet another post-apocalyptic thing. So you get the, you know, all of the call-outs to all the different Mad Max movies. These are the exiles that you get to include in your army. Is Lord Humongous in there? He is. <gasps> and what's the what's the little guy that rides on the other guys? Is that Lord Humongous? The guy no. that rides on the other. No, the, that's Master Blaster. The, You're thinking Master Blaster. They have Master. They have Master Blaster. But they don't they have, have Lord Humongous. They might. What's what's his what's his what's his jam? He was the Ayatollah of rock and roll. You don't remember? This is embarrassing, Walker. I just the the name. Uh, what was his? Leave the gasoline and walk away. No one has to die. I'm ashamed, Walker. I'm, I am can't believe how ashamed... I just did the worst impression in all of history, and yet I'm ashamed for you. So it has this very interesting combined arms. So if you have your scouts and your, and your brutes and an exile and just your normal infantry, then you get more dice. So that's an interesting part of it. But the it has a lot of odd things, Mark. It's There's no way to get victory points unless it's in combat. There oh. is some stuff at the end of the game where you're going to get a few points for these bastions that you hold, but it's not even equal to the amount of points that you're going to get for combat. When there's fighting, you get as many co- as victory points as the force that you just attacked. So he has a group of eight. You attack them, you get eight points. It's kind of odd huh. that way. And you know how our group works, that you have to amass these giant armies and then march out. So what you're doing is you want to get to the center because you're trying to get these resources that allow you to buy these exiles and or uh, ability cards. But your starting area is always missing one type of resource. So you have to go out and in the middle of the wasteland, there's extra bastions and all of the territories in the center give you your choice of resource so you want this 
huge army because you have to survive the wasteland because that usually makes you lose resources and or troops. And then once you get to the center, uh, one of the, you know, resource harvesting actions gives you resources based off how big your force is. So you want a big force. So, you know, you become a target, you lose guys. But anyway, it just became one of these, you know, slug fests. Mm. But the interesting part about combat is when you get the resources to buy these abilities, you put them on your player board. And as you roll successes in combat, you can, you slot them in on your board, depending on where you put it, and it'll cost you so many dice. And then they, you know, sort of engage these abilities. I thought that was very interesting because when you got one, it would cost you extra resources to make it cheaper to engage it in combat. Like you spend three resources and now it only cost you one star or you put it at the end and it'll cost you three stars to use it. So it comes with a generic ability that's always in play and then the combat ability on the bottom. And I thought that was kind of cool little system. Sounds intriguing, but honestly, it's beginning to sound an awful lot like the other design by Travis Chance that I've played, namely Path of Light and Shadow, which had all these interesting little elements and I, ha- I was super enthusiastic about, but all the interesting elements get drowned out by sluggish approach to combat, whereby you have the traditional problem of holding dirt and things degrading because you keep fighting all the time. And again, one of those one of those games that has interesting bits but fails to cohere because one of the central driving elements is kind of deficient. It doesn't encourage the kind of player interaction that I think leads to a good experience. Oh, we want to give it another try. We're going to see if we can get away with making armies that aren't so big, thereby giving away so many victory points, trying to, because even though these cards are cool, only a couple of the players sort of focused on them Mm -hmm. and see if that mixes up because you can get the very expensive ones that will also give you some victory points at the end, but it just didn't, didn't seem as though it even came close to the amount of victory points people got from fighting. I see. And that is Ruination. I played another game of the Stouffer Dynasty. The Stouffer Dynasty is the third redheaded stepchild in the stable of Andreas Stetting, he of Hansa Teutonica and Gugong. And I really enjoyed it. I, I don't understand why the Stouffer Dynasty has the reputation that it has. It's a very, very simple, straightforward area majority game, which is nonetheless embellished, and I mean that in the best possible way, with a whole bunch of one-shots and special powers and other kinds of resources that you have to go and acquire. The central action selection of the Stouffer Dynasty is so incredibly straightforward. You're going to have 15 actions over the course of five rounds of the game, and with every action, you either get more pieces or you place a piece out by paying with pieces. And that's it. And that's all there is to it, except for everything else. Which, as a consequence, can help the game look more complicated than it really is, because it's ultimately very, very straightforward. It's just, once everyone starts asking for the seventh time, what does this tile do? What does this other tile do? What does this other tile do? The mental load increases considerably. But, that having been said, I've found it very accessible for a wide range of gamers in the classic tradition of your good light middleweight Euro games, and I'm always down for more Andreas Stetting. My initial experiences have definitely been borne out. I will happily pull out the Stouffer Dynasty when people ask for it. It scales pretty well. I played it once with, the first time I played it was with three players, and this time was with five. And with five, it's definitely longer. The The length of the game just scares, scales linearly. But I didn't felt that the game dragged, and the downtime wasn't particularly onerous. And so the Stouffer Dynasty is absolutely a solid middleweight Euro game, and I recommend it. 
Hey, so once again on Saturday, we streamed a bunch of games. I already talked about one of them that we played was Shipwreck Arcana. We also played a game called Detective Club and Mandela Stones. So Mandela Stones is put out by Board and Dice. It's designed by Philip Gloez. And it is a very interesting abstract game, Mark. You're putting out uh, these all these piles of discs, and apparently they're like stones, because, you know, the name of the game is Mandela Stones. You lost me. And and you're artists, and you're going around, and there's two types of patterns on these stones. And there are four artists, no, there are six artists, which are divided in, evenly into these two patterns as well. So when you place a artist in the center of these groups of stones, they get to take all of the same pattern that they are, except unless there's another artist that's adjacent to it in another space. they All the artists lock down the stones that they're adjacent to. So it's this very interesting figuring out where you're going to get the most stones or or how are you going to get the stones in the right order because there's like sort of a metagame after you understand how it's played because when you score, all you do, you have like five different sort of scoring areas on your player board where you stack the stones and you can't, and you, you're only making stacks of what you take on your turn. You don't add to stacks. It's like, so if I go here in place and get three, they go in a stack of three by themselves. You know what I mean? You don't get to add later or increase. So when you score, you're going to be either taking the top one off and just scoring that many points, regardless of the color, or you're going to actually engage the different scoring mechanisms on your board. And in that case, what you're doing is you're picking a color and it has to match all of the top stones. And so they all they will all score, and then after they score, you take the top stone off of all of those. So the metagame will be making sure the top row is all the same, and the second row, and so on and so forth, so you can do multiple scoring turns, so you're not, like, you know, placing more stones and trying to get the colors. And it's got these really interesting, all these decision spaces of when to score and how to get the stones back, and the fact that, what after you take the stones off your board, they're going around this ring as well. You're placing all the stones that you've used, and there's bonus scoring points there as well, so you got to time it there as well. It's like, well, I'll only score this many points if I score now, but there's all this, so these bonus scoring points, so we'll bump it up, and I don't want other players to get that, so you want you jump in there. I will happily play this again. It plays very quickly. I think it says 30 minutes, 30 to 45 minutes on the box. It did take longer, but that was including the teach. And I think now with people that, you know, won't know what they're doing and will help with the setup because that's not nothing, putting all these different stacks of stones all over the board, mm. that it will be just as quick. Looking forward to play it again. Nice and light. Mandela Stones by Boards and Dice. And the last one we played was a game called... Detective Club. This is designed by Olkasander Novensky. And this is published by iGames. And we played a game, or I owned a game before, called Chameleon. And these are they're very similar games. So Detective Club, you're using Dixit-style cards, and everyone has a hand of six. One person is the leader. They look at their cards, and they find sort of a common theme between two of them, and they write the word down on these notepads you know players minus one notepads except for one of them is going to be the trader player so then you pass out the books so 
everyone knows what the keyword is, but one player, and they put out their cards that they feel represents that word. And then when it comes to, and then they put out a second card, sorry, first card, then a second card. And then everyone sort of tries to explain why they put the, the, the leader says the word out loud while well, the word was ducks. And then everyone tries to justify their cards, why they think it was ducks. And the trader has to sort of flub his way through it. And then Fair everyone way. votes on who they think the trader is. Yeah. Uh, sorry. Everyone votes who they think the trader is. And chameleon worked the same sort of way. Everyone, but the, the chameleon knew what the word was. And then it went around the table and everyone said words that were similar to that. And then everyone, tried to figure out who the chameleon was and they both sort of suffer from the same problem where if the trader is right after the leader it sort of leads to this sort of so we you know I sort of made sure we like paused for a minute everyone flipped the second card and then I said you know now say the word and then just wait a second and then everyone can and then people can go into their stories because you know you say okay the word's cats now you, who's the trader, right. quickly trying to think up something <laughs> with your, you know, the two pictures that you had no idea what was going on, why you picked them for cats. But that being said, it was a really fun game. I love almost all these games. There's hundreds of games that use these Dixit style cards. Sometimes I feel sorry for the poor artists. You know, they send, here's <laughs> the pictures that I made for you. They're not crazy enough. Make them crazier. It's like, okay, I'll add a candy cane here. Anyway. Detective Club, I would play it again. I think it'd be it would shine a little better with more players. We only played it with four, but it was super fun. Detective Club. Finally for me, we played Glorantha the God's War. This is by Sandy Peterson. Wait, is that that guy that does uh, Blood Rage and Chaos in the Old World? No. Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> we'll get to that later. No, Sandy Peterson is the one who publishes games by Sandy Peterson Games, and Sandy Peterson Games is a Sandy Peterson company. So, on the front of the box, no joke, you see Glorantha the God's War, a Sandy Peterson game by Sandy Peterson Games, a Sandy Peterson company. Just in case you miss who's involved. I've been vaguely curious about Glorantha the God's War because it's kind of sort of the spiritual successor to Cthulhu Wars, and what Walker is referring to is the fact that despite that we are very enthusiastic about Cthulhu Wars, it clearly has very strong influence from Chaos in the Old World. And this is one of those cases where I think it would have been incumbent on the designer in the rulebook to at the very least give a shout out or proper attribution. I don't, I'm not, I'm certainly not going to argue that it is unreasonable to release a game like Cthulhu Wars based on its similarity to chaos in the old world, but it is certainly the case, let me put it this way, that if Glorantha had been released by anyone other than Sandy Peterson Cubed, it would have been incumbent on them to at least acknowledge the influence of Cthulhu Wars on Glorantha the God's War, because it is very similar to Cthulhu Wars, but it has a number of salient differences, and I was curious about the differences. One of the things that you gain in Glorantha as opposed to Cthulhu Wars is there are these kind of little vignettes that pop up over the course of the game, partially by virtue of setup and partially just by virtue of the structure. For example, at the start of the game, the literal sun is trapped in hell. And one of the goals of the player who plays the sky is to try to get the sun out of hell, and there are a variety of ways they can do that, 
either less profitably or more profitably, depending on how much players are willing to cooperate. And there are lovely little bits like that that pop up a, cu- a couple of times over the course of the game. And those parts I really very much appreciated, because, as again, I really, really like Thulu Wars, but it's very much a, a game where there are lots of wild special powers, but it's all about building and maintaining gates. At the end of the day, that's what it is. You build gates, you maintain gates, that's how you win. Glorantha... Um, introduced a a couple of variations on that theme in ways that I found satisfying. Then there are the built-in structural bits. Namely, once somebody cracks a certain number of points, there's this thing called the Chaos Rift that opens, and then everyone unites to fight the Chaos Rift. That was okay. There's this thing called the Great Compromise, which is of great controversy because it's one of the most blunt catch-up mechanics I've ever seen. It's literally a system whereby somebody can pay half of their actions for the coming round. They get four points. They hand out three points to a player, two points to a different player, and one point to another player after that. Well, it's usually pretty straightforward. So it's just a question of whoever has the most power gets richer, and then they try to help the people that they think are not a threat. So there are varying degrees of success with that. Mostly, though, at the end of the day, the question is, is this sufficiently different from Cthulhu Wars to justify playing both? My intuition is no that you should pick the one you like better, either the system that you're already invested in or the system that you find thematically more coherent. Uh, Glorantha was mostly just variations on a theme, and as a result, it didn't really feel like an independent product to me. It felt like some sort of weird set of revisions that could possibly be backported to Cthulhu Wars. It's funny that you say that, because I have written almost exactly the same thing. It's like a failed Cthulhu expansion. <laughs> it's like they had these. It's had, they had these great ideas, but they just wanted to keep Cthulhu Wars a little bit more pure, or they didn't think sure. it could work there, so they just developed a whole different game with very similar to Cthulhu Wars, but introducing these new ideas that they had. I agree. It's a bit of a shame because, there again, there are some elements that I kind of prefer. It does feel like there have been some developments that are genuine improvements, but overall, it lacks the kind of straightforward purity that Cthulhu Wars has, which is a strange way to characterize Cthulhu Wars because, again, there are a lot of wild special powers going on. But the, the the fundamental core systems don't really have you scrambling for, okay, wait, how does this floating island work again? How does hell work again? Wait, is the sky on the map? Okay, the sky is on the map, but it's adjacent to what now? As opposed to, again, I, I find it a, occasionally a little bit rep, uh, repetitious how it's just about building gates and holding on to gates. But at the very least, you have a certain degree of more of a stable base upon which to layer all the wild special powers. So maybe in an ideal world, the design lessons that Sandy Peterson of Sandy Peterson Games, which is a Sandy Peterson company, would have been able to inject some of those mild improvements into the initial draft of Cthulhu Wars. But I'm quite happy having tried Glorantha to just say, I'm going to go back to Cthulhu Wars and stay doing it that way. Besides, you don't need to have more than one game from somebody who shows up on Twitter and posts transphobic comments. This is true. And those are the games we played last week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Well, Mark, like I already talked about, we do Twitch streaming every Saturday. I just want to let people know we usually we stream at 1030 Eastern, and it's not like uh, the other board gaming streams you've seen out there. We show up, we play the game, uh, that is all. So if you have been put off maybe or you thought it was not your thing, check it out. I think we're going to be playing Search for Planet X this week. That is to be determined. So Fog of Love was released a few years ago. It's a charming game about relationships. 
But there's an expansion that's, that was announced in 2018 that I'm still very much looking forward to, and it's going to make me go back to the game, I guarantee you, because it's being designed by Nikki Valens. Nikki Valens is probably one of the best writers in the board game sphere in its entirety. Her work is amazing, and the expansion is going to be primarily about queer and trans stories. So I'm very much looking forward to that expansion. But I mention this contemporarily because Fog of Love has announced another of-the-moment expansion. Maybe they'll release it before too long, perhaps along with Nikki Valens' work. It's called Love on Lockdown. This is about relationships during the era of COVID, and the subtitle just had me giggling. The subtitle is, I guess we'll stay in and watch a movie. Again. So I'm very curious to see these expansions to Fog of Love. So much like Tasty Minstrel Games, it seems like IDW is now closed. That would be a shame. Don't have that much information. From what all I read, it just... It, it doesn't seem as though they've put out, at least that I could find, a statement themselves. They have not officially seems... acknowledged that they are shutting down their games division, but there were reports that they had, there are basically business reports that they are abandoning board games as a source of revenue. This uh, the, the last time we talked about IDW on this show specifically was when we were talking about how they had released Emerson Matsuuchi from his contract for the Metal Gear Solid board game. He of Spectre Ops. He designed a Metal Gear Solid board game with them. They announced it. They even started, uh, they announced uh, they they were going to do play videos with the voice actor for Solid Snake. Uh, Dates kept being missed and people started wondering what happened. And then Emerson Matsuchi showed up and said, well, it's kind of dead. I'm now shopping the game design to other people, possibly with other licenses, because working with Konami might be a whole thing. Apparently working with licensees is very difficult. IDW mostly did licensed work. I don't know if that contributed to their demise, but that's definitely characteristic of their published works. And uh, although they are going to continue as a company, they don't plan on doing board games anymore. And then lastly for me, two last bits of some Kickstarter news. It seems Avatar the RPG broke the internet. It has (laughs) made a ridiculous amount of money. And then the committee bit is the updates from For Science. So Mark's probably followed along with these. It's great. It's like, how many of these are they going to say? They, how many times have they said that it's in the factory and it's been <laughs> shipped out? Well, let me tell you, June the 4th, update 34. We have them. They're going to be sent out soon, June 25th. Well, they haven't processed them yet. Soon to be out, June 25th. Canada's games are packed up and they're on their way. So Canada games didn't get really shipped out. They just got packed up and now they're shipped away. And July the 20th, oh, sorry, the game's still learned on the warehouse, even though it's, you know, a month later. And then August the 6th, the games have arrived. We're going to ship them very soon. And then a month later at August 25th, no, sorry, we we misspoke. The games aren't actually there, but now they are. (laughs) So they should be shipping any time now. On the one hand... It seems a bit churlish to complain about shipping delays, given the global rolling catastrophe that is international shipping. And then on the other hand, there's for science. You called it comedy. I would label this more as like a, a slowly ongoing tragedy. Just such misinformation. Like, I just don't get it. Misinformation implies intent. I am willing to ascribe these two failures. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. On now to our feature game, which is Soldiers in Postman's Uniforms. This was designed by David Thompson and published by Dan Burson Games. This is simultaneously a review copy we got from the designer, as well as my own copy that I backed on Kickstarter. This is the third game in the Valiant Defense series, which started with Pavlov's House in 2018, 
followed by Castle Itter in 2019, also designed by David Thompson, also published by Dan Burson Games. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in soldiers and postmen's uniforms? So, the first time you play it, if you don't look ahead at the cards that are going to come out in the different phases, you're going to be surprised by a bunch of stuff. So, once you know what's happening, then you're sort of planning ahead. It's sort of a tower defense game. You're adjusting your your defenses to minimize your casualties. You're preparing all of your civilians and soldiers to escape as, you know, the firepower increases on your defenses. And then you're getting ready to take the howitzer to the face. Oh, yes. One does take the howitzer to the face. So, Soldiers and Postman's Uniforms, much like all the other games in the Valiant Defense series, is a solitaire historical war game. This is about a particular battle that happened in Danzig on the 1st of September 1939, the first day of the Second World War, actually, where elements of the German police and the SS attempted to take a Polish post office in Danzig and were held off for many hours by the postal workers that had holed up inside the building. Now, there's a lot going on there historically, and I would like to touch on some of them, albeit later, uh, but this I just want to stress right off the bat. One of the virtues of historical wargaming can be to, sh- to draw attention to or encourage the player to learn more about these odd little engagements that, not to undermine their seriousness, but that are understudied or under-discussed rather than, say, a 57th iteration of American paratroopers in the Western Front fighting the Germans. And this is definitely true of Castle Itter as well. If you haven't heard us talk about Castle Itter, I've talked about it a couple times on the show. And it similarly is a bizarre element of history. Although, in that case, it was near the end of the war. And for what it's worth, for my fellows in Quebec, it has a bit of a tie-in in in that in the story of Castle Itter, René Lévesque shows up uh, when he was a wartime reporter. So I encourage you to go read more about that, believe it or not. Anyway, so let's. Uh, I, I think we should talk about the game first, and then we can talk a little bit more about the broader historical context, if that's all right with you. Yeah, no, the way I have my notes set up is like going through an entire turn. So let's just start with the setup. It is not a small thing. There is a fairly extensive setup where particular pieces have to be on particular spots. There's ammunition, there's grenades, there's rifles, there's... German soldiers, there's this complete board that needs to be set up every time you play it. You know, the normal things you'd find in a post office. Exactly. And then there's three distinct phases of the game. There's the morning phase because, oh, there was just three distinct uh, attacks to the post office that day. Yes. A morning, afternoon, and night. So there's three different phases and they they each have a different setup and uh, sometimes different ending conditions to get through to the end, to the next mission. I honestly really liked the staged approach. You're right that the first time you play, or if you don't look through the deck, it, unless you're intimately familiar with the notes that the designer includes about who attacked from where, when it's going to be a little bit of a surprise because only a subsection of each board is used in the first two attacks. And it's only in the third attack when suddenly the entire board gets employed in its fullness, or at least that half of the board, because the board is split up between a strategic bird's eye view of the entire area of engagement on the left-hand side and on the right-hand side, it's just the, uh, the, the post office itself. And the fact that it was staged into three separate little vignettes, I really appreciate it. It gave you a little bit of time to break up the action. It gave you three particular set pieces. 
and then there's a, a chance to recoup. And I also felt that it was helpful as a solo player because for me, if I'm going to be playing a solitaire game that's around 90-ish minutes, as Postman's Uniforms is much of the time, I really like it if there are natural breaks because I like to be able to step away if I'm feeling a little bit overwhelmed. Not that it's an overwhelming game, but for me, so the, the absent the kind of social interaction and assistance with another player, 90 minutes all at one go is not always what I'm in the mood for. No, and it, it really, you know, enforces that one of the key elements of the game is balancing how much of your forces you're using. Cause every time you take an action with someone, it's going to exhaust them and you have to decide on whether you're going to spend more actions to unexhaust them or just leave them and cycle through more of your pieces and just wait for that end phase. So they all come back to you. It's this very interesting balancing aspect. Absolutely. And I think I want to compare it a little bit to the other Valiant Defense games, because one of the complaints of Castle Itter and Pavlov's house was the impetus for maneuver sometimes wasn't as strong as it could be. And otherwise, in other words, as befits tower defense gamer, sometimes you didn't feel the need to move your soldiers around very much. And I was very, very pleased with the extent to which this game, as compared to the other games in the series, allowed for and emphasized movement. Just as an example, when playing Castle Itter, in order to move a soldier, you had to exhaust them. And as you pointed out, exhausting a soldier is very, very time-consuming. Here, in Postman's Uniforms, every turn you get four movements. And not only do those movements not count against your action limit, very much like in Pavlov's house, but if you move a soldier, not only does it not exhaust them, all that it does is it means they can't take an action this turn. So you have to consider where you want your soldiers to be. Can you take a turn off? Can you take two turns off if you need to exhaust them? Those kinds of trade-offs I thought were extremely well done. The next up is the Germans always go first. And I really love in this game how the AI is very simple, very quick. You go through it very quickly. On the German turn, you're going to flip over five cards, and it could be anything from assault troops to support troops to maybe a special card like uh, the howitzers, right? So assault means you're just uh, sort of chaining the German troops towards the post office, and then they get uh, sort of blocked up by this very interesting blockade mechanism. And the only thing that shoots during the... German turn are the machine guns. So it's very fast, very few die rolls. But that being said, sometimes it, it lets you forget to shoot those machine guns. Sometimes <laughs> you're, you're cruising through the German turn so fast you realize, oh, wait, there was a machine gun card there and you have to go back. But it's very quick. You put the machine gun out, you roll a couple dice, and it has this interesting targeting system. And then you're on to the next card. You go through five, and then it's your turn again. I agree. The AI is a breeze to implement. You feel threatened. I, I mean, it's very, very intimidating the extent to which the Germans will deploy a fair amount of firepower towards you. And that's even before you consider the howitzer, because yes, the howitzer will ruin your day. It's almost a matter of inevitability. In the classic tradition of historical war games, if the building got destroyed, the player needs to get wrecked. And that's exactly what happens with respect to the howitzer, if nothing else. And I really appreciate the fact that in a sol solitaire game, I spent the overwhelming majority of my time thinking about what to do with my soldiers and with my troops and with my pieces, rather than trying to remember how the AI worked or executing the AI. True. Unfortunately, this is the only the only place, and it's to a very minor extent, that the the solo or cooperative 
problem rears its ugly head of randomness because not only are you drawing random cards, but now you're rolling random dice because there's all these different lanes that come into the post office. And so you're drawing random cards for the soldiers and then you're rolling a random die to see what lane they're going to go down. So you could get this red, this, the series of, I, I just drew all troops and they all went down the same lane. So it could go bad, but this is the problem that is in almost every solo slash co-op game out there because their only tool of AI is randomness, unfortunately. I'm inclined to agree. It even gets a little bit worse, although not, not strictly speaking exclusively in a negative way when you start playing the veteran version. In all of David Thompson's Valiant Defense games, there are usually additional optional modules to increase the difficulty. And specifically here, there are tactics cards that you can pull that will influence how the AI works. But they definitely dial up the randomness to a considerable extent. Just to give you a couple of examples of AI cards that I pulled. Some of them are, every rifleman you pull, place two riflemen one after the other. Well, how many riflemen are you going to pull that round? Because you could pull five riflemen, you could pull uh, none. Similarly, there are ones that say, for every machine gunner you pull add immediately another machine gunner counter. Now, the way the machine gunners work in soldiers and postmen's uniforms are actually really quite clever. The first time a machine gunner shows up, they're threatening, but not especially deadly. But if you leave them alone, or if you get super unlucky and you draw two in rapid succession, they become much deadlier and much harder to deal with. In the normal game, that you get these lovely little trade-offs, because most of the time they show up one at a time. And so you get to think, well, do I take care of the immediate urgent problem, or do I deal with that machine gun nest before it becomes a serious issue? Well, if the tactic card that doubles up all the machine gunners comes up, eh, they're just going to be drowning you right from the start. This isn't really complaining, a complaint about the difficulty, per se. It's just saying that when it comes time to make the game more difficult, usually it ups the randomness as well. Yeah, I, th- I thought that was a fantastic thematic part of the game where the first machine gunner chit that comes out, it's just sort of the team running along and, you know, either, you know, shooting a little bit or, you know, slowly setting up their position. And then if you don't take care of them right away, then they've had a chance to embed themselves and, and now they're much harder to hit and, and can fully open up with their gun. So deal with them immediately or else. Yes, Absolutely. I'm just going to jump back to the barricade mechanism, which I thought was also very interesting because it worked right in with the terrain. Like there was all these walls and hedge sort of systems. Barricades, yeah. There were were these choke points that they said were barricades. So when the tokens reached that point, they would just build up. And as soon as they reached that point, you'd shuffle in another card into the deck. And when that when the card, when that particular grenade card came up, then they've broken through the barricade and all of those troops that, that had built up will flood down their lanes and probably flood into the post office. Another marvelous element of push your luck, right? Because you see them being held in place by the barricade and you figure, well, they're being held in place. They're not going to be busting down the doors of the post office anytime soon. And then they start building up and you figure, well, there's always something more urgent. But you really do have to worry because the moment they bust through, they form a lovely little conga line and sometimes straight into the post office two and three at a time. And then you've got serious, serious troubles. And so, you, you again, you're constantly facing these little tactical trade-offs about dealing with the urgent problem versus dealing with the crucial problem. And I really appreciated those strains on my decision-making. Another cool mechanism works in that particular spot where there are officers and armored cars. So if they're in that stack, if the officer's on top, he's harder to hit. So he's going to make that stack that much more difficult to take care of. Whereas the armored cars, as they go down the street, they're protecting all the soldiers. They need a six to hit on a D six. 
you, I think in, I'm not sure if you ever targeted them or, or blew one up in all of the games I played, never even tried. I once had to try to take care of the tip of the spear of an armored column because they were about to enter a field in which I had laid down suppressive fire. And if the armored car entered the suppressive fire, it was all going to go away. And so I reasoned that it was worth my effort to try to delay that that part of the column long enough. I was wrong because it was an inevitability that an armored car was going to end up in the supp- suppressive fire anyway. Uh, but that was just me being stupid. <laughs> now, since we're talking about things that we you know we did differently, I'm just wondering. There was a very interesting line in the rule book about uh, in the final phase. It said if if barricade four had not been broken down, then then break it down now for the beginning of phase three. And what this would mean would that would be that you stopped all tokens from even reaching the barricade in the first place. Yes. And hats off to any player that can <laughs> do that. Yes. Uh, feel free to save any such tales of those exploits along with your talk of having beaten Regicide. And and the reward that you get for stopping the tokens from even reaching there is that it gets broken down anyway. <laughs> well, again, it's not about... It's like any other tower defense game, right? It's not about turning back the tide. It's about delaying it long enough. Because this is another thing that you need to be careful of when you're playing the game. I missed this the first time I was playing. I, can, I, I really wish I'd, I'd been paying more attention. When the assault ends, when phase one ends or phase two or phase three ends, all the troops get removed. And so if you're down to the wire near the end of the assault, they're going to be recalled. So they're not your problem unless they're inside the post office. So on the other hand, those machine gun nests that got set up, oh, they're going to stick around. So they become your emphasis and they become your your, your problem. So again, the barricades are representative of, of this idea. You're not going to defeat the entirety of the Schutzpolizei or the SS. There's too many of them. Your job is to buy time. And so now it is our turn. And the first thing that happens is that you have four movements that you can do. And there are three floors to this post office, basement, ground floor, and upper floor. And even though, like Mark said, uh, movement's free and doesn't bug, doesn't uh, take up your actions, it's still very tedious because you're moving from the books Sorry, you're moving from the rooms to, you know, those, I guess, you know, it's called the interior or you can say the stairwell and then slowly up the, to the floor that you need to go to and then out to the room you need. So it's like four turns to get a particular soldier or person to where you want him to be. Yes, it can be a little bit tedious and part of it is historical setup, of course, you know, because the people are where they were when and the start of the mission. But I... Uh, later on, it felt a little bit gamey because surely, given the fact that there was an hour-long break in hostilities, there would be time for any of the people to be anywhere in the building they needed to be. But honestly, I appreciated the gaminess because, again, it made the movement feel consequential. I had to know where I wanted my people to be and I had to plan to get them there. So, yeah, there, there are certain set pieces that always occur at the start of the game for me anyway, which is getting a rifle from the top floor to the to the main floor, getting Flissikovsky and Conrad into position. Why are they in the basement? What are they doing there? I don't need them in the basement. They should be elsewhere. Come on, guys. But anyway, uh, I it doesn't feel scripted. It feels like I have trade-offs to make, so I appreciate that even though it feels very gamey. 
For sure. And it's very much that either you don't need, you know, you look at your movement tokens like, I don't need to move anybody, or why don't I have 10 movement tokens? <laughs> it's one of these things where you, you don't want to move at all, or you need all of the movement. Yes, I, I seldom feel like I need none of the movement, because moving the supplies around is usually pretty handy. You need ammo uh, to the machine gunners, but you don't know which machine gunner when, so you don't want to overcommit. And then in, invariably, I found anyway that I overcommitted anyway, and the machine gunner on the main floor had all the ammo, when the machine gunner in the basement was the one who needed them, so then I have to get some other postal worker to go get the ammo and ferry it around. So, again, I appreciated how important Maneuver was, especially when compared to the other Valiant Defense games, where sometimes it felt like an afterthought. Well, I do want to jump ahead there then, because because I only used, in all of the games that I played, Suppression Fire was used once. Really? Huh. Now, it's possible that I was being overly influenced by my experience with Castle Itter, because in Castle Itter, it's almost exclusively about Suppression Fire. And that worked actually to its detriment, because every time you pulled a soldier card in Castle Itter, usually it was pull the card, roll for placement, decide how much suppression fire to do, roll for suppression fire, place the, the token. And as a result, the amount of time you spent managing the AI, sure, there were some decisions buried in there with respect to how you were doing suppression, but you just felt like you were spending most of the time in the AI phase, and that made me feel like my agency was being degraded to a significant extent. Suppression fire in postman's uniforms is mostly the element of last resort. Because based on how the line of sight works, mostly you're going to be laying down suppression fire in the areas immediately adjacent to the post office. And I I do it every game. Maybe that's because I'm not very smart or maybe I'm not doing it properly. But I, I found it very helpful. Because with a single action, with suppression fire, you can get five or six dice of attack. As opposed to normally with an action, what you get is two if you're lucky, three if you're very lucky. It is true, but you run into the problem that if you miss, then you lose all of your su- suppression fire. Two, you, it has to be to an empty space. Yes. And three, there's usually always something else you want to shoot at anyway and kill immediately. <laughs> oh, no, it's true. There are, there are downsides, but I usually felt that it was worth the trade-off. But then again, maybe it's just a, a different style of play. And again, as I say, maybe I'm just being influenced by the previous Valiant Defense games. All right, so movement is done, and now it's on to actions. Much like movement, you get four of them. You get four actions to spread across all of your soldiers, and you really want (laughs) ten. Just ten? I could do with twenty. It's true. Like I already talked about, you want to keep a balance between your disrupted and exhausted troops and ones that are ready to shoot and whether or not to unexhaust them or heal them or just cycle through all of your troops and just leave them all exhausted by the end. It's this very interesting, you know, puzzle to figure out. And then let's move on to some of the the special things you get to do while it's your turn. Line of sight. Oh my God. So awesome. Right back to Tonhauser. The, the, you know, orange can see orange. It's like the upper building can, can see out. They have this cool corner section of the building that can see, you know, down into the courtyard or at the entrances. I think the it all works out very well and very interesting and keeps everything in a balanced way. And it works in the opposite way too, because the, the support weapons like the, the artillery and the, and the machine guns, they, they go into double spaces and they see very interesting parts of the building as well. And I think they did a great job of, you know, keeping that very balanced and interesting. It is one of the many hallmarks of the Valiant Defense series. And I agree, it's done very, very well. It is super playable, super accessible and really good. And the, the rifles versus pistols, because like we said, you know, all the, all of the, the soldiers in the upper floors start with rifles. You want to get some down because you can't 
shoot any of the support any of the machine guns to support things unless you've got a, a, a ranged weapon and moving that stuff around is always important then there's a command action which lets you he- do three heal actions but you have to have those commanders in the right place and they can't have moved and they can't be exhausted and they can't have done another action so it's you know this interesting puzzle to figure out inspire lets you roll more dice when you shoot or when you do suppression fire and same thing with them you they can't have moved they can't have taken another action so getting them in place and in the right place because they can only help the room that they're in very very interesting the recover action which we sort of already covered which you're healing guys or unexhausting them logistics what do you think about logistics i'm not totally sure you (laughs) said you moved around a lot of equipment all of the soldiers can carry two items the logistic guy gets to carry four I'm not sure if this was like an honorary title or not, but <laughs> it didn't. It never, never seemed to play out as anything very important. Uh, this is what we in the historical wargaming community refer to as Chrome, namely a rule that is inserted because it seeks to model what actually happened in history. The individual postal worker with the logistics feature just happened to be the one on the actual historical battle that was ferrying supplies between the different rooms. And so as a result, he gets to ferry four four tokens rather than two. I think I maybe used it once. And then there are the grenades. Oh my God, the grenades. So powerful. Fun times. I I, I think they are so much more powerful than shooting. I think it is a little odd. I think it it works well in the game. Don't get me wrong. I think it's balanced in the game. But the difference between the shooting and the grenades is a little excessive. Well, you have a limited number of them. They are only to be used against soldiers that have already penetrated, uh, Germans who have already penetrated into the building. And so it's really a method of last resort. And it can still end up killing some of your guys, which again is historical chrome. Because his, in the actual engagement, what happened was the leader of the uh, postal workers, Conrad Guderski, deployed a hand grenade against some members of the police who had infiltrated into the postal post office, killing them and himself. So in the actual engagement, it was very deadly. And so it was decided to be modeled as such too. The useful gameplay element that it introduced was it meant that every time there was uh, an infiltration on the post office, you weren't forced to just pitching a small number of dice hoping to kill them because once you've been infiltrated and you, you, your people are in the wrong place, or if you've run out of grenades, you really do have a series of forced moves. And so the grenades are really good at keeping the game moving. I find. All right. Our turns are now done. Another round, which is called the clearing round where all of the Germans that are inside the post office, they finally get to do something other than move. Yes. They they follow this uh, interesting sort of hierarchy of tokens that they remove. They remove as many tokens as they have combat value. And like I said, once again, AI, very quick, very deadly, and you're done. And it really is good, I find, at inserting the real sense of menace. I thought I knew that the game was menacing me when I had, you know, fully entrenched machine gun nests, and or a lot of troops that are on the streets, when your stairwell is full of submachine gunners, and you know that if you don't do anything against them, they're going to start going through their murderous logic of removing all your people and sapping your morale and getting you ever closer to an insta-loss, that is when the game's tension really, really ratchets up. And then when the clearing round is done, we go to the escape round, which only can happen in the third phase. 
and that's when you you're you're you realize you've done what you could and now it's time to get out of there. Oh yeah. You need to and you need to clear a complete lane, which is a little difficult because of the setup. They put a rifleman on every single lane. Mm-hmm. So and they're not just normal riflemen, they are SS riflemen. So they have a little bit more armor and it's it's this very interesting ramp up because there's some howitzers going off. They've got the SS, they're more the more powerful and it's this big climax at the very end and you're moving like we said that with the limited movement you're trying to you're getting everyone to the exits that are clear and you're trying to flood them out through because they're going to get you more victory points double the victory points if they've escaped and i really enjoy that part again it's about trade-offs it's can you afford to spend the extra firepower and or actions and or time to clear out a lane entirely, ignoring the fact that there's an entrenched infantry gun that is that is hammering you because you want to run up the scoreboard. Because at the end of the day, this is a solo game. There are loss conditions, but the win conditions are separated by score thresholds. And there's a lot of thematic uh, and, and historical resonance to this as well, because there were four individuals who escaped the post office during the siege. It's also the case that in the game, as historically, there are three civilians in the post office that were not postal workers. There was a, a janitor, his wife, and their adopted daughter. And I personally felt a great deal of impetus to get them out of there as fast as I could. And I found it very, very satisfying in one of my games when I was able to do just that. I was able to escape all three of them out the side entrance, and it felt great. And so, yes, did did I pay for it? Absolutely, yes. There were lots of other postal workers that probably became casualties as a result of it. But it was an interesting narrative moment, an interesting moment of additional tension and of further gameplay trade-offs. Yeah, I think almost every game will play out that way where there are key shots that you need to make to clear that lane. Yes. And the the howitzers blowing up the whole top of the building and then making that decision whether you're going to try to run a guy up there because the upper floor is the only thing that can clear a certain color, which is all lanes but the side door. And I, it's a, it's a great game. So I, I, I agree with you entirely. In terms of quality of decision-making, I really think that this is David Thompson's best historical wargaming work since Pavlov's House. Because the thing about Pavlov's House that differentiates it from both Castle Itter and from Soldiers and Postman's uniforms, for what it's worth, is in Pavlov's House you have this extra strategic element. Namely, you don't just have to manage supplies inside the defense area, but imagine if on top of that there were a separate phase where you had cards that you needed to play to get the supplies in there in the first instance. And it's very simple, very straightforward, but it's an extra level of challenge. And I really appreciated it. And it meant it kind of blew up the the, the sense of scope. And I really, uh, I thought in terms of gameplay terms, it, it, it's the best of the series. But uh, Castle Itter, I really, really appreciated because it was, as I said, an investigation of a conflict of a particular engagement that is seldom discussed in historical wargame circles. And I imagine, from what I gather, seldom discussed in broader historical contexts as well. And for what it's worth, I really think that Soldiers and Postmen's uniforms is historical wargaming at its very finest. Because this, to me, has the level of historical interest and unusualness and specificity of Castle Itter, but improved gameplay 
from some of David Thompson's years of design work, not necessarily in the same way of Pavlov's house, but it's definitely been a refinement of the system because the quality of decision-making is there in a way that I haven't felt in Castle Itter, but it was sufficiently interesting in the context. And that, that, that's why I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about the context of this engagement to sort of round out the review. Because for every Valiant Defense game that David Thompson does, he writes a companion book. And you can buy them from DVG, or you can get the free PDF on his website. And in all cases, if you're going to do historical wargaming, I sincerely recommend you read whatever designer's notes are available, at the very minimum. But in this case, for Soldiers and Postman's Uniform, I would say it is 100% required reading, but I personally am very glad that I did it. Because there are so many interesting historical elements that come together in this, again, not to undercut the, the, the lethality and the tragedy of this incident, but the bizarre strangeness of this particular engagement. What was Danzig in 1939? Why was it independent? How was it independent? How was it not independent? Why did it have a Polish post office if it was independent? How terrible and awful was the Treaty of Versailles and its attendant pacts? I was not expecting this engagement to involve elements of the Treaty of Versailles in quite the way that it did. And I love reading about that stuff. Why were there so many military-trained men with machine guns and grenades in a post office as postal workers? All of this touches on so much geopolitics, it made me so happy to read about because I found it so fascinating. This was kind of like a lot of the geopolitics and of military tensions of the 20s and the 30s in a microcosm. And so you have this marvelously resonant and engagement that invoked so many interesting elements in the lead-up to the war and the war itself. This is a marvelous, marvelous way to approach the onset of the Second World War, and I'm so glad that it's getting more attention in this wargaming context. And like, and I've talked before about games that depict actual people in a war stance, like games like A Distant Plane that have photographs of actual soldiers. This one also leans heavily on that. Every token is an actual photograph of the postman or soldier with their name. And like I said, this this uh, feeling of uncomfortableness is like a two out of 10 for me. I mean, it's, it's not that great thing, but if that's something that is, makes you uncomfortable, maybe this is not something, but I, you know, it's a, it's a teaching method. And like you said, it, it brings to light this battle that I've never heard of. I'm sure a lot of people have never heard of this first day of world war, world war two, this, this very unique and interesting battle took place. Uh, there's a little bit of setup. I wish the wording was slightly better, you know, because there, there are a lot more postmen that in the game that you actually use, and then they they use words like you know they're interchangeable, you know just you yeah. know put these put these ones back in the box, you know and use them any way you want because they're interchangeable, and this is more like of a I'm at work I'm lost in thoughts and you know <laughs> what I mean and and this thing starts grating on me so I, it's really much of an overthink but I just think you know they could have worded it slightly better like choose these tokens put the other ones beside the board these people were in the battle but they're just not going to be represented this time in fairness for full context it does specify that there are more counters than you need so as to give credit and to the valor of the defenders of the Polish post office. But you're right, interchangeable is probably not the the, the, the best word to employ. 
Uh, I, for one, I'm glad you you bring this up in terms of framing, in terms of presentation, because there are some elements of pretty much every historical war game, same with historical movie or historical book, that I can quibble with. And obviously, I have my own idiosyncratic views on politics and the legitimacy of violence in various contexts. That's neither here nor there. But you brought up a distant plane, and I think that's a good counterpoint, right? Because in terms of soldiers and postmen's uniforms having messages they're a little bit less overtly political than a lot of other contemporary war games. There's some discussion about what the status was of these Polish postal workers. It's actually a bit strange that it's called soldiers and postmen's uniforms because one of David Thompson's arguments in his designer's notes is that they were not soldiers. They were merely civilians acting in in self-defense. I don't know if I agree with David Thompson's analysis. He's obviously read a lot more about this than I have, but some of the background that he identifies is that they were being armed and trained by the Polish state and that some of them had ties to Polish paramilitary groups or even Polish military groups. And it was not an accident that all of those people happened to be there on that day. So calling it purely an act of self-defense, maybe, maybe not. Calling the soldiers, I think even David Thompson, waffles back and forth between the title and his description. And obviously there's the fact that they were all executed later as partisans, not that I'm endorsing that in any way, shape or form. So in any game like this, there are political overtones. And again, exploring those political overtones I find fascinating. The virtue, though, of something like soldiers and postmen's uniforms is that it is less openly polemical and it is less trying to push a certain version of, or certain vision of geopolitics than, say, a lot of other games. And I mention this specifically because listeners have been asking about, Mark, why do you hate the coin games so much? Because I do hate the coin games a fair bit. Not only because I find them boring games, but because I find a lot of the coin games, very much like Labyrinth and a number of other designs by GMT, are very much pushing a particular view of geopolitics that I think is bankrupt and dangerous, in very much the same way that I find a number of games about, say, the American Civil War are pushing a certain revisionist vision of the South that I think is bankrupt and dangerous. And I really appreciate the fact, again, in the elaborated designer's notes, that David Thompson addresses these issues, discusses these things. He puts forward his own view, of course, but not in a polemical way and really is an opportunity to investigate these things. I just hate hate the fact that so often what you have is a lot of war games that are basically just apologias for strange and bankrupt ideologies about how we should be projecting force around the world. So I could say more about that, but that's that's about different games, not so much about soldiers and postmen's uniforms. I would play this game anytime. I'll have to say that only one of my plays was actually solo by myself. Oh, all of the other plays were with someone else. So it's more of it was more of a co-op experience, and they all said the same thing that this would be a game that they would never pull out on their own, but they'd be more than happy to play again as sort of like a group experience, sort of all make decisions type and play it out. Solo historical wargaming is, of course, a very niche activity. It's something that I engage in, but it's not something I feel like doing all the time. Again, this is a, you know, 90 to 120 minute solo game, and I very much appreciate being able to do that if I can walk away for a while. But you're right. It is far better to be able to play something like Soldiers and Postman's uniforms cooperatively with one or two other people than a lot of these other fixed player count co-op games where there's really the same amount of decisions to be made with any number of people, but you're just divvying up on smaller people. There's more quality decision-making to be had for two people playing soldiers in postman's uniforms than any two people in lots of other co-op games that are nominally multiplayer. And to sum up, I'll just repeat what I said before. I sincerely think that games like soldiers in postman's uniforms are historical wargaming at its very finest. Interesting historically, 
resonant with lots of interesting historical elements that come together in this one under-examined engagement with tons of quality decision-making, lots of narrative, and the historical detail is there, but it doesn't overwhelm gameplay. I really think this is a, this is a triumph from an excellent, excellent designer. I've said lots of good things about David Thompson in the past. He's a very, very talented guy, and I look forward to future installments of the Valiant Defense series as well as future work by David Thompson in other contexts. Because remember, this isn't just the guy who came up with the Valiant Defense series. This is also the guy who co-designed Undaunted. This is also the guy who co-designed For What Remains. Really a triumph, a really, really, really impressive designer. I can't wait to see what there is in the future. And like you, I look forward to future playings of Soldiers in Postman's Uniforms. Well, that's going to do it for us for this week. Thank you very much for joining us for So Bearing About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker by his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at The Games You Like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon and Twitch. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.